that ancient city of Babylon. From the early pages of Genesis, this city represents mankind's desire to be independent of God and to build a meaning of life on the shifting sands of materialism. Revelation chapter 17 and 18 talks about the rise and the fall of the final Babylon. Is it a city? Is it more than a city? Where is it? I'm Mary Wordson, and this is Truth Encounter. Interpreters have wrestled with the meaning of Revelation chapter 17 and 18 from Jonathan Edwards identifying Babylon as the Roman Catholic Church and its French connection in the 18th century to our tendency to identify Babylon with our present enemy. Is it a city or is it a symbol of something more than a literal city? Let's turn in our New Testament to chapter 17 and join our Bible teacher, Dave Wurtzen, as he uses one of his old chemistry illustrations to introduce the powerful seduction of Revelation's Babylon. Dave? As I think about how you could feel the seduction of this old Babylon, I think of carbon monoxide. You can't taste it, you can't see it, you can't smell it. And yet, if carbon monoxide begins to wafe over you, begins to fill your lung, in just a matter of time, you're going to be poisoned, you'll be destroyed. And that's kind of what John the Apostle wants us to feel as we open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. He wants us to feel the seduction of this incredible, evil atmosphere, this attitude of life that's that's opposing God down through time. And the way John is, is anointed by the Spirit to drive this lesson home to us is he pictures a whore. He pictures a prostitute. My brother uh, Frank is a pastor up in Nebraska. And Frank is speaking today on Genesis, the book of Genesis. And he's speaking on the light of the world. The Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. And he told me, all excited, the way I'm going to get this message across is I'm going to turn off all the lights in the congregation. And as I begin to preach my message, and I begin to declare how in the beginning God said, let there be light, and there was light, I'm going to suddenly turn on the lights in the auditorium. So I scratched my head and I wrote him back in the email. I said, man, I'm speaking on the horror in Revelation chapter 17. So what am I supposed to do? Have a horror come riding into the auditorium on a big red dragon? And he laughed. He, I could still hear him laugh. That would really capture your attention, wouldn't it? But that's what you need to visualize in your mind in Revelation 17 as we begin. It says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came. And he said to me, so we've just had the pouring out of the judgment of God. The final judgments of God in the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl bring us to the climax of this tremendous judgment from God that brings this incredibly powerful, seductive system down and destroys it. And John has one of these angels come to him, and in chapter 17 and 18, the angel says, I want you to focus on the way that God brings down this incredible, seductive economic system, religious system that's represented in Revelation chapter 17. He says, come, I will show you the punishment, the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on the many waters with her, the adulteress, 
The king of the earth have committed adultery. And the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And so John is introduced to this incredible vision. You ask the question, why is it that God pictured this, this atmosphere, this philosophy, this power that's been at work in the world, and ultimately at the end of time, we're going to try one more time to get a hold of all of mankind, every nation on planet Earth. Why does he picture this atmosphere, this, this system, as a prostitute? Because the prostitute dresses up seductively. I remember being up in uh, Recife, way up in northern Brazil. Jonathan and Joel and I were leaving about 2 o'clock in the morning. So the missionary said, well, we'll go in and go to the World Life Headquarters. We'll kind of look around the city of Recife. And as we were riding down the streets, you could see the ladies of the night throughout Recife dressed in these immaculate clothes. I mean, just incredible clothes, very expensive and they had themselves all made out. And they were the, the women of Recife that were going out seeking to do their trade and to be able to make their money. How do they do it? They attract, they seduce. They pull a man in. They seduce you. They capture your eyes. And then they, they give you pleasure. They give you excitement. They give you sexual thrills. And then you do it for money. You pay them money for what they're giving you. That's the powerful imagery of a prostitute. It's a picture of, a, of the seductive person that's pulling you in. In the Old Testament, the Bible, the prophets often presented, for example, Israel. They would present Israel when it wandered away from God as being a prostitute that's plying her trade among the nations. If it wants to talk about the city of Nineveh, in the book of Nahum, for example, or also in the book of Jonah, you have Nineveh, this gigantic world empire of the early ancient world. And it will picture Nineveh as being like a whore that's going out and seducing all the nations. It'll talk about Egypt that way. It'll talk about Egypt getting all dressed up in all of her beautiful clothes and putting on all her jewelry and putting on all of her makeup. You all remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel. If you don't, you might want to go back and read that story in 2 Kings. Jezebel was a princess from Tyre and Sidon. She was a Phoenician and she came down and was Ahab's wife, the king of Israel. And she seduced all of Israel by her beauty, by the incredible luxury that she invited the northern court of Israel to live in. And she moved them to partake in idolatry. During the time of Ahab and Jezebel was a time of great prosperity, a time of great economic strength, and, and Israel was just intoxicated. That's the other imagery that's used. When you get drunk, when you start to drink too much, you begin to lose touch with reality, and you go through like a happy phase where you can celebrate, where you can party. You know, you can sneak out and have a party and you can start to take a little bit of alcohol and it's on the sly and you begin to find out that it brings warmth to you. It brings a party spirit to you. Some of you that are really shy begin to find out if you drink a little bit, then you can feel confident and, and you can tell jokes and you can become the life of the party. It moves up into high school and, and you have a whole pull in high school. You have one group that lives to party. There's a, there's a whole drive in the high school scene that just to live to party, to live to have a good time, to live to be able to have that thrill. 
As you move up into college, some of our seniors will graduate this year. They go down to college and they're going to find out when they're taken away from mom and dad that they're going to have this incredible opportunity to go out there and have this great big thing called the world. And you make a decision. You know, we think of it as just going down to a place like UT or A&M or Baylor or wherever you might want to go, even in a Christian school, like where I wanted to hope was just a Bible-thumping Christian school, but you could still find that pull into a party. This is an incredibly powerful war that's going on over your soul. And there is, there's two cities that are after you. We've been worshiping in the city of Jerusalem symbolically. We have been worshiping where Jesus was crucified. We've been worshiping at the holy city of Jerusalem, which is going to ultimately come down out of heaven. And it represents in the biblical revelation all the people of God who've chosen to live their life based upon a love for the Savior, a love for Jesus. As I look back over my life, both Tom Harris and Dad Van Campen represent men that chose to love the new Jerusalem. They chose to love Jesus. They chose to build their life upon Jesus. From the earliest days that I knew dead, if we went down to downtown Broken Bow and ran into somebody in the drugstore, dad would be trying to look for an opportunity to share Christ with them. As we would go to a restaurant, he would want to, you know, you would be waiting and he, dad would get in a conversation with, you know, with one of the waiters or one of the waitresses about Jesus. All of my life, Dad and Mom Van Campen have been examples of people that are in love with Jesus and building their life upon Jesus. Tom Maharis, when I first met him, was into the big city. He was right in the Big Apple. And New York City is the place where the economy happens. Dallas and Fort Worth is just a little tiny place compared to what it really feels like to be in New York City. To go up on Wall Street and feel Wall Street pulsating. And to see people at lunch break going by. To see ladies coming with their paper bags. They now put on their running shoes, their Nikes. And they're running to the next appointment. And, and all the guys with, you know, they're all, I don't know what paraphernalia they're, they're looking at this year. But they usually are running with their briefcases. I mean, it's where it's happening. Man, you can make big bucks. I mean, you can go to any show you want to. You can, you can have any food that you want to. In New York City, any hour of the day, any hour of the night, you can go and have any food you want. It is a cosmopolitan city. I know that there's some of you that are longing for that city. You're longing to be able to get out there where it's happening. You want to be where the action is. You want to be where the money's to be made. You want to be there where the scintillating experiences are, are at. That's what Babylon is. That's what John the Apostle is talking about. It's that part inside of you that is lured to just live for now. To just live as if this life is all there is. That's what this whore represents. This horn represents living my life for just what money can do. Living my life as if there's no upper story. Living my life as if there's no ultimate heaven, no ultimate God. I just live for now. That's what this horn represents. In Revelation 17 and 18, in John's big picture of things, he pictures this prostitute. And she represents the religious economic, social dimensions or system 
that is ultimately controlling the hearts of all mankind, all womankind, that haven't received Christ as their Savior. And it all started way back in the early chapters of Genesis. You all remember the story. And one of the very first times that you're introduced to Babylon is in Genesis chapter 9. It's a story that you all learn in Sunday school. If you hadn't, let me catch you up on that story. It's a story of Babel. It's why we've got all these crazy languages and all the stuff that's going with that. But at Babel, God had given man a simple command. I want you to go into all the world. I want you to spread out. I've given beautiful, you know, I've given you beautiful Lebanon. I've given you beautiful Europe. You can even spread out to the Indus Valley. I want you to go down there and enjoy all the wonders of Asia. I want you to spread out into Africa. I've given you this incredible world. And I want you to spread out. Here you are in the Fertile Crescent, in the land between the two rivers called the Tigris and Euphrates. I want you to spread out. And move out from there, move over from Armenia, where the, where the ark probably landed, and spread out into all the world. Is that a hard command? That's not a hard command. Most of you kids would give your bottom dollar, your parents says, man, just spread out, just get out of here, you know. Split, man, just go out there and have a good time. Enjoy the environment. That's what God is telling mankind. Usually you're going to find that God's commands are not burdensome. Jesus said that. His commands are light. God's commands are good. In fact, it's good for us to spread out as Texans. You ought to really appreciate that. You've built a culture on spreading out in a big land. But man, as they were moving forth with their families, came to Shinar, this land between the rivers. And they said, if we keep spreading out, we're going to lose ourselves. We're going to be lost in oblivion. And nobody will ever remember us. And they found as they went down to the river and they mixed straw and mud and they began to develop bricks and they would sun dry the, uh, they would dry them in kilns. They found that they could make a really hard building substance. And it was the beginning of technology in the post-flood world. It was the, be- I mean, it was this beginning of this great wondrous thing that we call technology. And it began just with a little brick. In the pre-flood world, Cain and his descendants were able to initiate technology. It looked like some of that was going to be lost in the flood. But on the plains of Shinar, they rediscovered it. And it all began with a simple thing called kilns and bricks. And that's what was going on in Genesis chapter 9. They found out they could make really hard bricks. And what they said with the bricks, we're going to build a city. We're going to build a skyscraper that's going to reach to the heavens. Now, they weren't thinking childishly that they could reach the ultimate God by somehow building a tower, kind of like the ultimate space shot from the ancient world. That's not what's going on. In Babel, what they were saying is, we're not going to need the upper story. We're not going to need this terrible God that destroyed mankind in the flood. We're just going to live for now. We've got to make a name for ourselves now. We're going to build a tower to the heavens with our technology. We're going to build a beautiful city. And we're going to make our heaven right here on earth. That's what was the spirit of Babel. That was the spirit of Babel. It's, I'm going to worship technology. I'm going to, I'm going to take the material prosperity that technology can give me. And I'm going to make the whole meaning of my life in terms of living right here on the plains of Shinar. I want to ask you, what do you live for? If you don't think you, you breathe that atmosphere tomorrow when some of you go to work at the cement plants, 
You're going to be in touch with both men and women, both men and women that worship technology. They have degrees in engineering. Some of them have degrees in financing. Now, in the midst of that, yes, you know, with all my heart, you know, at Chaparral Steel, I know, and praise the Lord, some of you are right here, and I love you, and I want you to know that we need to be in that big industry for Jesus. We need to be there as lights to tell the truth. But I want you to understand that tomorrow morning when you go out into the university, when you go out into big business, when you go up to Dallas-Fort Worth, when you go into the school system, you're going to find that this philosophy is very prevalent. It's very strong. And it's the idea that you can make sense out of life just with your own ingenuity, with your own planning, with your own dreams, and just living for now. And if you can develop a skill, if you can get technique, if you can get technology, then you can make a lot of big bucks, and that'll make you happy. And then you can build big houses, and you can build big skyscrapers. In fact, if you really get really big, you can even build gigantic cities like Manhattan and London and Tokyo. And then you're going to really be something. Please listen to me. That's a lie. That is a dirty, rotten lie. You see, when you're young, it seems like it's going to work so good. And it just seems like time will never run out. And all those new experiences seem so great. They seem so exciting. And boy, when, you, when you're making a really good salary, it just seems like, man, this is awesome. This is what life is made about. But then you start to experience all the things that the city of Babylon can give you. And it becomes a horror. None of you deep in your soul, there's not a man in this room that really wants a prostitute. There's not a woman in this room that really wants a gigolo. Do you really want to pay money for just a surface relationship that just brings excitement and thrill, but then all it is is an economic transaction? There's no love. There's no trust. There's no eternal time. All there is is money and scintillating pleasure. Is that all that you want? Tell me, is all you want out of life is excitement and thrills? Is all you want, you know, getting drunk and having the the excitement of that? Is that all that you want? No. Deep inside of every one of your hearts, deep inside of every one of your hearts is a hunger to find someone that's true. Someone that the bottom line doesn't count. It's not about money. It's not just about selfish pleasures. Deep inside of every one of your hearts, you understand that words like faithfulness and trust and truth-telling and compassion and enduring love, self-sacrificial love, the kind of love that holds families together, And gives kids places that are safe. That's the opposite of Babylon. And you need to understand that right in the the wrestling match, in the ring of your own heart, those two battlegrounds have been laid. In your own heart, there's a part of you that wants, I want to make a name for myself. I want to be able to build those great big buildings. I want to be famous. I want to be able, I want to, be able to, to really say that I've experienced what this life has to offer. And you wander away from God. You turn away from obedience to him. 
And instead of building your life on, oh, dear Lord in heaven, you're the one that gave me my breath. You're the one that gave me my eyes. You're the one that gave me my hands. You're the one that gave me my feet. Oh, Lord in heaven, I just want to give my body and my life completely to you. Instead of that, you're saying, man, I'm going to do it my way. That's Babel, the Tower of Babel. Now, that philosophy continued to dominate the world even after God you know, caused the languages to come. He divided the people and they had to begin to spread out because they couldn't even understand each other. But as we move down to about 2300 BC, a little bit before the time of Abraham even, we have a man named Sargon. And interesting enough, Sargon came to rule over the ancient kingdom of Akkad, right in the same place that it talked about in Genesis chapter 9. We don't know much about Sargon's early life. There's some stories that are kind of like the stories of Moses later on in the Bible. It talks about Sargon uh, being raised in, in a very poor family, and his daddy found him hidden in some bulrushes in a basket. And so you've got some of those kind of stories going on. But Sargon comes from a very obscure background. And suddenly we find out that he becomes the king of a union of all the cities in this land of Shinar, the land that's now become the land of Ur, U-R, which later on is where Abraham's from. But at this time it represents this whole area, a city called Akkad, which was destroyed before the time of Abraham. But we know from ancient Sumerian sources that Akkad was a gigantic, powerful capital city. And the man who started the first dynasty of this ancient Sumerian culture is a man named Sargon. We know that Sargon traveled all the way to modern-day Turkey and conquered modern-day Turkey. We know that he went all the way into the Hindus Valley, just like Alexander the Great did many years after Sargon. And, and, and we know that Sargon took his armies and conquered the riches of India and tremendous ointments and incredible luxuries from ancient India were flowing into this land between the rivers. Babel, Babylon, the kingdom of Sargon. I also know that the fourth ruler... In the dynasty that Sargon founded, it was a man named Narum Sin. Kind of a weird name. Probably won't get any ideas for for a kid's name in your own home. But Narum Sin took the title, I am the king of the four corners of the world. Say, what's so significant about that? Narum Sin is the first king recorded in history that declared himself to be the king of the universe. He declared himself to be God. And he is the one that initiated this whole idea where you've all studied in history how rulers, like in the ancient kingdom of Rome, in ancient Greece, the rulers would declare themselves to be God. And they would use the religion of an entire population, the social structures of religion, to galvanize the population around them. That's what Naram Sin started. That's what Sargon the Great was committed to. This idea that there's going to be one big world empire. We don't need God in heaven. We don't need this, this, this weak talk, this childish talk of a bloody lamb, of Jesus shedding his blood on Calvary. Who needs that? Who needs Jesus, this weak carpenter's son? It's not what we need. Naram Sin and Sargon started the idea, we don't need dependence upon God. We don't need dependence upon the promise that he made to Adam and Eve that God would send one day a great deliverer. 
Instead, all we need is ourselves. We are the king of the universe. We are the king of the four corners of the world. And some of you aren't audacious enough to say, well, man, I'm the king of the universe. But I want to ask you, are you the king in your own life? If you're the king in your own life today, in other words, if you're going to get up tomorrow and you're going to do what you want to do, if I'm going to get up tomorrow and do what I'm going to do and make my name for myself and build my career and go for it, and I want you to know, this seductive prostitute, seductive influence, this intoxicating drink is really strong. It's strong in my own life. It works in the ministry. You know, why don't you take this position here? It has much more name, much more reputation. You'll be able to make a name for yourself. That's a big pull. It's a big pull. Just like it is in your life. And as you grow older, I want all of the, the younger ones to know, it doesn't get even any less. Now I'm at a stage in my life where you start to ask, well, Man, I better make a decision now, because if I'm going to really make that name, if I'm going to really find that impossible dream, i got to do it now. Some of you are really wrestling with that in your lives. I want you to know that that's Babylon. That's Babylon. It doesn't mean that the Lord might not give us influential positions. In fact, I think often the Lord takes what we think to be very insignificant, and he causes it to have profound significance. Like precious Mary that anointed the feet of Jesus with the ointment and, and, and wiped his feet with her hair. A little insignificant incident. You know, the disciples, the religious people thought she was nuts for doing it, but the Lord took it and exploded it into worldwide eternal significance. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom of Jerusalem. The kingdom of Babylon says, no, I've got to think about myself. I don't pour out myself for Jesus. I, I invest in me. You're going to see it in the ads. You hear it in, in counselors that are advising you about what you should do in your life at times. I want you to really look carefully at Revelation 17 and 18 as we get this introduction because I want you to get this big picture. Some of you have been taught, you know, what this is is an ancient city. Maybe it is going to be an ancient city that's rebuilt at the end of time. And maybe there's going to be a big New York City right in the land between the Tigris and Euphrates. I don't think it makes that big a difference where the city is at the end of time, during the tribulation period. Because what it really represents is this whole social, economic, religious structure. And Revelation pictures this social, economic, religious structure that's divorced from the true God as being this egotistical, prideful thing called Babylon. And I find that there's Babylon right here in my heart. How about you? I find that there's a love for the new Jerusalem. There's a love for Jesus. There's a desire to really build my life upon him. But I can have other impulses, just like the pull of a whore. Just like the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, when it comes to the mail, and you know it's there, what do you guys do with it? That's a seduction of Babylon. If you want to know what Babylon is, that's what it is. That's about money. It's about pulling your eye gate in. It's about getting you to lust. It's not about purity. And you're going to live in an environment. You're going to come across both men and women all this week that are living on that other side. 
And you're going to be tempted to go into this other side. And what Revelation 17 and 18 is going to teach you is where it ultimately ends. And so you have Babel in Genesis 9. This worship of pride, worship of technology. Going to build a name for myself, not by obeying God, but by building a great city. We have Sargon the Great and Naram Sin, about 2300 BC. And they're declaring, we're the king of the universe. You come to Daniel chapter 2. Remember that? Nebuchadnezzar sees this great big image. And this is New Babylon. It's the reincarnation of the old Sargon Empire. And when we say the book of Revelation together, Nebuchadnezzar becomes in the ancient world the epitome of a dictatorial, totalitarian king that's going to rule the universe. He was invincible in his day. And in the book of Daniel, you read about God's struggle with Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. He goes out of his mind. And a lot of the background, a lot of the background for Revelation 17 and 18 is rooted assuming that you know the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Because part of what you see here is the madness of evil. One of the things that we're going to study together, we're going to find out that this kingdom of evil divides. In other words, there's a political military side to the kingdom of evil. Antichrist rules this military political side. But in any political structure, like I can use Adolf Hitler, for example. Adolf Hitler was not an economist. He was not into big business. He was into power. He was into armies. He was into the generals. But in order for him to rule Germany, he had to get the industrial base. He had to get the banks. He had to get the economics. And so he made a union. In fact, you can read the documents where the economic structures of old Germany actually said, we can control this political guy. We'll make an alliance with him because he'll produce the order. He might kill a lot of innocent people, but he can produce order out of chaos. It'll be good for our economic prosperity. We can make big bucks. In fact, we'll even make big money as we rearm Germany. Let's do it. And so right there in the history of World War II, you have this union and kind of an, an unhappy wedding of the political forces and the military and the economic. The same thing is happening at the end of time in the book of Revelation. So when you read about Babylon, I don't want you just to think about a city that might be rebuilt on the shores of the Euphrates River. Maybe, maybe not. What I want you to know is that the city is alive and well right now today. Just like the new Jerusalem, the new heavenly Jerusalem is alive and well, it should have been alive and well in your heart as we broke bread together. And just as that new heavenly Jerusalem represents the body of Christ, it represents the Jewish people that receive Christ during the tribulation period, it represents the Gentile that they reach out, it represents all the people of God down through the centuries that are related to the true God. Jerusalem in the book of Revelation has that kind of of universal dimensions. In Revelation 17 and 18, Babylon, the word mystery Babylon, has the same gigantic connotations. And it's the war over the souls of men. It pictures here her as being the final manifestation of what was present at Babel, what was present 
in Sargon the Great, what was present in Nebuchadnezzar, what was present in John's day, as John wrote these words, the people of John's day would be hearing Rome. That's what Rome represents. Because Babylon, to them, was Rome. Rome represented that city, that kingdom, that powerful force, the economics that was making the world run, opposed to Jesus, opposed to God. So Daniel, it's a revelation. I mean, revelation is using this powerful imagery to gird the people of God, to keep them from being seduced like all the inhabitants of the earth are being seduced. Now, the text is going to go on and describe in chapter 17, you see how this prostitute struts her stuff. We, she rides on top of the political military system. And then the political military system at the end of the chapter just gets put out with the whole thing. And in Revelation chapter 18, the military and the politics turns against the economics. And Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. And that's a story that we're going to have to see. But in introducing it, in going back into some of the history giving you some of the modern manifestations of what Babylon represents and what the New Jerusalem represents today, I want you to realize that the reason you need to choose Jesus, the reason you need to choose the New Jerusalem, the reason you need to choose his love and his grace is that he laughs. He laughs. He'll never disappear. And he also will not turn against himself. We might have a hard time sometime in the body of Christ staying together and learning to love each other. But I want you to know that ultimately, because of the Spirit's power, you're going to be united. If you'll hang on to the body of Christ and you'll hang on to Jesus, really let him hang on to you. Ultimately, it's going to be unity. It's going to be love. It's going to be togetherness forever and ever. So it's worth the struggle. If you choose Babylon, you'll have excitement. You'll have scintillating pleasure. You'll probably travel like crazy. You might make big bucks. But in the rest home, at the end of time, you're going to wake up if you still have your weenies and your brain screwed on right. And you're going to realize, man, I live for totally the wrong city. And I'm serious about that. Because you've only got one life to live. One life. And you can listen to the real truth of God, the Spirit of God. And I know this is a big pull. Like, some of you are going to walk out tomorrow and, and like... Because you're a follower of Jesus, you're laughed at, some of you. Some of you, they think you're just from another planet. They think you're crazy. I want you to take Revelation 17 and 18, and I want you to start to read it. Because what this precious book does, the more I read this precious book, the more I get on my knees before God and read this book, I find out this is the book that tells me the truth. It exposes what the horror really is. What this seductive, secular, economic materialism is all about. Brothers and sisters, what we've introduced this morning is probably one of the most important messages that I've ever given you. You see, it's really easy to know that sexual immorality is sinful. That's part of the satanic kingdom. It's really easy to know that it's wrong to lie. It's really easy to know it's wrong to murder people. But you know, if you go out this week and you get offered big bucks at a big job, and yet when you get down on your knees before the Lord, you start going over all of your priorities, all that the Lord wants you to do. And in the kingdom of the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of Jesus, you say, I know it's got to be this. 
and you choose this over here. That's a big divide. It's a big mistake. I close with this. In the movie The Insider, which exposed how big tobacco for years and years and years lied to us. They knew for sure from scientific laboratory experiments that their product was a carcinogen. But big bucks held the day and determined the ethics. And in the movie The Insider, Bergman, who directs 60 Minutes, says to the insider, this PhD in chemistry that is debating whether I should come out, whether he should come out and tell the truth or not. And the insider says to Bergman, as he's debating, he's saying, all I wanted was a really nice house. Is there anything wrong with that? Not in itself. He said, all I wanted was to be able to live in a really beautiful place down south with beautiful golf courses. I just wanted to be able to, to go out with, a, with the big executives. And, and I was a poor PhD student with all kinds of debts. Was there anything wrong with wanting to get that big triple, you know, six-digit salary? What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with it in itself. But he faced a choice. I can have my big salary and keep poisoning people. Or I can tell the truth. And I can lose everything. And he did. He lost his house. Lost his wife. She wouldn't stick with him. He lost his reputation. You know the incredible thing about that? Even Hollywood, in all of its Babylonian seductive influence, every once in a while, they know where the choices lie. Because they were preaching at you guys, saying, what really counts? Can you really make money when you're taking people's lives? Can you really make money at the expense of someone else? That's babbling. And this week, a whole lot of you are going to have to make choices like this. The Bible's not speaking against technology. The Bible's not speaking against making money. The Bible's not speaking against big houses or small houses. The Bible's not speaking against beautiful 18-hole golf courses. But what it is speaking against, whenever you face the choice, is it right? I lose money. It's wrong. I make money. It's wrong. It'll hurt people. But I can still make a lot of money. How do you make the call? How do I make the call? And that's where Revelation 17 and 18 hits the road because Jesus Christ... Jesus Christ wants to come into this body of believers and cause us to go out into the kingdom of darkness this week and be in board meetings, be in school meetings, be in neighborhood meetings. And he wants us to remember, I'm living for the new Jerusalem. I ate and remembered Jesus' body and his blood for me. And that's my ultimate ethical basis. And everything that I do, and everything that I say, and every decision that I make is made with those eternal values in view. And Jesus promises you that you might lose everything. But if you have him, then you have everything. This is serious stuff. 
I know this week some of you will face a choice. It's money and doing what's wrong. Losing money and doing what's right. And you're going to decide which city you're going to live in. Every one of us will decide this week which city we're going to live in. I want to challenge you. Live for the sweet bride, pure and holy, of the new Jerusalem. The whore of Babylon, in the end, will just rip you off. Because we have a great king. Naram Sin, Nebuchadnezzar, Sargon, Babel, they're not the king of the four corners of the world. This morning you have worshipped the king of the four corners of the world. His name is Jesus. And he's not king of just the four corners of the world. He's king of the universal universe. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, when I talk to my brothers and sisters like this, and your Holy Spirit talks to my heart like this, it's tough. We live in America today where... The idol is a prosperity that looks like it might go on forever and ever. And oh Lord, I would pray that we'll realize that 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 influence, that drive for money, that drive just for material success, that blinds us to everything else, can become like carbon monoxide. We can't taste it. We can't smell it. We can't see it. But we start to breathe that atmosphere and we start to die. Oh, Lord Jesus, cause your Holy Spirit to cut all the clothes of this whore of Babylon off of us. Clean our lives. Make us pure and make us faithful. And I pray, Lord, that our families, our marriages, our businesses, our influence in every area of our life would be totally controlled by the fact that Jesus, not the Antichrist, is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I join with Dave in praying that you will go out into your school this week, your place of business, your athletic club, your social gatherings with friends, and live out the reality among them that you are living for the New Jerusalem where Jesus is the King and not for this present world system of Babylon.